Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Hello and welcome to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel. Joining me is Tali Germain. Uh, Tali, we spent a lot of time in the last episode getting to know you a little bit and hearing your story, and thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing now? You, you're the sure. head of Equity Partners, I think? Yes. Yeah, so we uh, we launched an organization about a year and a half ago. It used to be Equity Partners. We're now Onward. Um, and there are a couple of reasons we made the shift um, in terms of name. There are some practical ones, right? Equity Partners didn't sound like it really had anything to do with issues of addressing um, racism. Um, yeah, I was ready to invest today. <laughs> exactly, I felt like, you know, exactly. you're smart, you're, you're like driven. I'm like, yeah, she's got a fund, exactly, I'm in. Exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> and we wanted something that signified forward movement. Um, and we thought Onward would capture that in a meaningful way and we didn't want to have multiple words, et cetera. So we are now Onward. What does Onward do? So we what do- What projects do you have up Yeah, on? so our focus, um, so, so- I started this organization because a couple of things happened, and I think it's important to share that. Um, I shared during the last episode that in my soul and in my experience, even as a child, I've always been an activist. And I think one of my superpowers, one of my gifts is the ability to, to work with people across lines of difference and to bridge and to be a bridger. Um, and And when I started uh, Onward, a couple of things were happening. One of them was um, the killing of black people by police. You know, I'll, I'll be just straightforward and say it. Um, and in particular, um, there was a woman by the name of Sandra Bland um, who died in police custody. And that really impacted me because of her age, because she was black like me, because I knew that many more of us needed to step up and do something different in order to both change the narrative about black people in America um, and to, to really help to bridge the gap between communities where conflict exists. So um, we do a couple of things. So our first um, area of work uh, focuses um, a, as a technical assistance provider. We help organizations build their capacity as it relates to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so we do executive coaching of CEOs and executives. We provide assistance in terms of programming and helping communities come together. We help organizations to build strategic plans that are diverse, equitable, and inclusive, set goals, et cetera, metrics. And then we provide them the tools so that they can continue to do their work. So that's the work that I call technical assistance. The other work we're doing focuses on this idea that there are, there are stories to be told that haven't been told. In the last podcast, we talked about the idea that in Aspen, we were able to have really frank and direct conversations, and we were able to illuminate different experiences about issues of race and equity. So the other side of our work focuses on um, a, a number of docu-series we are going to be filming and, 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 and sharing um, with the world about issues of conflict, identity, and race. Um, and we're filming in four locations um, where we think those issues are even more pronounced. Um, we're, we're filming in Chicago, in the Inglewood community in Chicago. We're filming in Israel. We're filming in Jordan. And we're filming in, in South Africa. And what we're trying to to capture our stories of people that will really build empathy, 
Hmm. Right. So the I, I believe and we believe as an organization that one of the ways that we can really understand each other is if we can actually have empathy. We can actually understand why someone made a decision in order to have a conversation with them. Um, we're in a time right now where it is really difficult to have a conversation with someone who is not like you. There's a ton of mistrust, right? And I can speak to it myself. Like if I'm walking down the street and I see someone who doesn't look like me, I immediately wonder, are you on my side or are you against me? And that's a problem because I've found in my own experience that most people are not actually against me. Right? We may not understand each other. We may not have the same opinions about things, but we're not necessarily against each other. Um, I'll share another little tidbit that's recent. Um, so, and then I'll go back to Onward. <laughs> so recently there have been a number of bombs, um, bombings in Austin, Texas, and of black people, right? If I'm being completely true? honest. Yes, it is. Um, the, uh, the bombs were put in predominantly black neighborhoods or? To black people directly. Really? Yes, handed to black people. I'll send you a, an article. Um, and for for some time, it wasn't national news, right? Like, and and the trends hadn't been identified except in black communities, right? And black communities were saying like, "Hey, this this is this is not um uh, oh, it's not random. Yeah, it's yeah. not a random act." Um, and so part of the challenge I see with that is, A, the fact that it, it wasn't national news immediately, right? So there's this feeling I have as a black person in the United States um, that sometimes the issues that matter to me or the things that are like feel detrimental don't matter to the broader um, world. And so how do we change that narrative, right? How do we bring people together to have real conversations about the things they don't agree about for the greater good? So our hope as an organization is to, to create a scenario where we can dismantle structural racism. I know it's big, it's a huge aspiration, might not happen in my lifetime, but one of the things I say to people who say to me, like, Tali, really? Like, you think you can do that? Is I say, well, you know, apartheid in South Africa somehow ended. And it took lots of people to have that happen. And, and that doesn't mean there aren't still problems and challenges in, in, in South Africa. But, but someone had to take a step and say like, I'm going to do something about this, right? And when we think about slavery in the United States ended and it didn't end because people all of a sudden said, you know what, we should end slavery, right? Like that is, no, we should just stop that right now, um, right? It took activism, it took movement building, it took energy, it took people to come together across lines of difference to say something about this doesn't feel right. So you're, I think you're honing in on something very interesting, and at least it, I like it because it's about radical moderation. Activism, I think, can often be seen as very radical. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like your vision of activism, activism is more of a moderate one, meaning it's about reaching across. You're talking about South Africa and Mandela. I know when we were in Aspen, we talked about Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and his work a lot, mm-hmm. um, and that change is kind of evolutionary as opposed mm-hmm. to revolutionary. Mm-hmm. A do you see that as being the primary primary mode of change? It's got to be. It's going to take a little bit more time, but we need to be able to work across lines rather than kind of being very aggressive and direct and and pushing from the extremes. B, what do you what what are your thoughts on more extreme activism? Um, you know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, overall helpful? Are there challenges with it? Um, is it 
Could it be more nuanced? Go. Yeah, so many questions. So the first thing is, I actually think that Mandela and um, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., oh, let me say that back, Nelson Mandela and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were actually radicals in their time, right? We have created a narrative that presents them as heroes when they were both in jail for a good period of their activism. Because in the moment, what seems radical when history is told isn't always perceived that way because of the greater good that comes out of it. Mm. And so what I would say about about this work generally is, you know, I would say there's a trajectory of perception. And on that trajectory of perception, there are people who will see me as radical because of my views and my perspectives. And there are people who will see me as moderate. Um, What do I think about Black Lives Matter? I think like every movement, right? There are things that are, that they have created a conversation that previously was not in the national space, right? Like, I think there's tremendous value in the work that Black Lives Matter has done. And like every movement, I think it's critiqued. I think there are challenges. Um, I think I think the other thing is, obviously these are my thoughts and my perspectives. Um, the other thing is that um, people who are activists are often demonized and villainized until their activism yields the result that they were trying to get. And this is my point about Nelson Mandela and Dr. King, right? They are villains until we become a better society. We're like, you know what? They were right, (laughs) right? I always thought they were right. 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 Exactly. And I think this time in history will be especially um, interesting when we think back a hundred years. Who were the people who were pushing forward the change that we needed? And who are the people who are not, right? Who And so I think about that every day. And, and I actually want to be one of the people who literally changes the narrative. Um, and, I, and I actually think coming together across lines of difference is not a kumbaya experience. It doesn't mean like, oh, all of a sudden we agree. Right. It means that there is something fundamentally wrong and everyone needs to be an actor in fixing it. And fixing it might mean be, being your most honest self. Yeah. That was to me, I think the most profound learning that I had when I was with you was Mm -hmm. just, it's not about talking delicately to each other and and saying all the right things. It's actually about doing the hard work of saying the things that you're kind of scared to say or admit and Mm -hmm. and hearing, you know, pushback and, and, and making yourself vulnerable with somebody Mm -hmm. else. And without worrying that I'm now going to be, you know, I don't know, victimized back in some way. So let me present a dilemma that we had recently which I think touches on a number of these issues. So as I think uh, you're probably following, there was a school walkout organized by the youth division of the women's uh, march group. Mm -hmm. Um, There were also students who organized a different uh, walkout, but there was a 17-minute walkout in schools across the country Mm -hmm. for the 17 victims of Parkland. Mm -hmm. Um, Our school uh, in in Los Angeles, the private Jewish day school, very... I was about to say very diverse population. Relative to who we are, it's a, it's a fairly diverse population. Um, we made it optional, created a really meaningful opportunity for those who wanted to walk out. If people didn't want to walk out, you know, we, we're not about pushing a particular agenda one way or the other. We certainly wanted to commemorate the loss of the lives of these, uh, of these young people. Um, there, 
as we were kind of coming up on the day of the walkout and we had made all these plans and we thought it was Solomonic and we had this perfect balance, uh, people let us know that it was being organized by the Women's March Junior Division, Youth Division. And very recently, a member of the, a prominent member of the Women's March movement had uh, spent time with Louis Farrakhan, mm-hmm. who is, you know, I, I, I always hesitate to use the word anti-Semite because if it becomes overused, it's, it's meaningless. But someone who kind of continues the canards and the blood libels almost over the last hundred years about Jews and running the media and they're, you know, they're evil and they're just from pigs, they're descendants from, you know, apes. It put everyone in a very strange position because here we believe deeply in social change. Schools need to be safe, period, end of story. Kids died. We need to remember that for a moment. We need to stop our days and walk out for 17 minutes. And it's being organized by a good group of people, except that group of people is fraternizing, sorry, Mm -hmm. with an avowed anti-Semite. And so you sort of get stuck in this very strange position of what do you do? Meaning, is there a line? Like, what if, what if it's being run by, uh, you know, a group that is really antithetical to, to values? Do you still proceed with your social justice and your activism? Or is there some point where you're like, no, I can't associate with this. So some Jewish day schools didn't do it. They did their own Mm -hmm. walkout. Mm -hmm. We ended up staying with it. We said, Hey, this was one person uh, they should apologize. The Women's March should distance themselves from from Louis Farrakhan. But wh- where are you on that kind of thing? I mean, that's a really complex. You didn't think this was gonna be easy, Tali? Did you? No, no, <laughs> not and not like. So I say it's complex because I I think right what you mentioned are values, right? You were doing this because of some values you hold. The truth of the matter is, I don't know what I, I don't know what happened in the meeting, right? But the value you hold is that kids should be safe. And my perspective of that is if that is what the work is about, then the work continues. And it sounds like um you move forward with your with your young people. I I don't know. I, I mean if the script was flipped. Meaning and- uh huh. I don't know. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm doing this on the spot. So help Do me. Do something. Help radical. me craft it. Yeah, no, no, help me craft it. Uh, there's a, there's something there's, it was the gun. Same thing. Mm-hmm. And David Duke, uh, you know, clan member, anti, just racist. I mean, he happens to hate Jews also, mm-hmm. but <laughs> he's an equal opportunity bigot, sure. but he's mm-hmm. really disgusting towards the black community. Mm-hmm. He's he's given hugs to the women's march people somehow. Mm-hmm. They're they're arm in arm marching for gun safety in schools. Are you marching? Are you supporting that? Were they arm in arm, Farrakhan and and the they, they, I'm just wondering. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. They're hugging each other uh-huh. and and saying, you know, I really support your work. And the and the women's march doesn't say, wait a second, that was one of our people that doesn't speak for the women's march. You know, they didn't say that. They just, they they let it go. Meaning mm-hmm. David Duke hugged one of our leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, like, obviously I'm not supporting David Duke. Right. right. Like, that's clear. Um, I think the challenge for me is, again, 
what is the value I espouse, right? Is it that this thing should happen? Like, I, I am not affiliated with the Women's March, right? I actually think there's a real challenge. You're, you are not affiliated with the Women's yes, March? I am Interesting. Not. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't believe in some of the things that have happened. But, you know, when I think about, I, I, I think that there were moments where we needed the same people who showed up for the Women's March to show up, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. And they they just I would say they left us me behind, and I actually never I, I've never been to one of the women's march events. Why? Because um, I think so. When so so we're gonna talk politics a little bit here, right? Um, so when the it's a safe space. It's just it, you and me. Well, Um, when the uh, election results um, came out I was actually with y'all I was in LA um, and I remember like looking at the demographic data and looking at how many white women voted for Donald Trump to become president I'm just going to say I was not one of the people who believes he should have become, he should have, he should be president even today. Um, And I say that to say that um, for me, there's mistrust. There's already mistrust between me and the Women's March leaders. Because I don't believe that they have showed up when the black community was in need. Interesting. Um, In real ways. And, and that's, it is a criticism of, of them. Um, I actually don't think they're radical enough. I don't think the marches are the only things that will get things done, right? Like I, I and, and, and so I say that not having been involved and I realize that I'm not in, in the end when it comes to the women's march and their work. But there are things I fundamentally believe. I fundamentally believe kids should be safe. So if there's a greater good, like, hey, kids are walking out it's been organized, et cetera, et cetera. I'm totally for that. Right. But will I align myself with, with the Women's March group? I don't know. Interesting. So you're saying you, once you find that ultimate value, even if they're a little bit that goes along with it, you kind of, you can also, you have to decide, do you want to leave that off to the side for mm-hmm. the moment? Or mm-hmm. what do you, th- I mean, let's say we have two groups. Um, let's just say as an example, the Jewish community and the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, what could we be doing to work together? Oh my goodness, so much. So, yeah. so I, I actually, um, I, I, I mentioned in the first podcast. I grew up for a part of my time in Brooklyn and Crown Heights, um, and actually went to a high school where a lot of my good friends are Jewish people, um, and <laughs> celebrated all the Jewish holidays as a result, which was awesome. Um, and I. What's think- your favorite? Oh my goodness. Um, first of all, I want you to say Shmini Atzeret. It's like a tiny minor holiday. Shmini Amseret. Um, <laughs> it's my favorite. Um, but, but the thing is, right, like I have lived with, with, within the Jewish community for a very long time. I told you my favorite teacher is Mrs. Yeah. Buxenbaum. Um, and so I think as communities, we have endured a lot of challenges together. Yeah. If I'm being completely honest, meaning like, we have experienced trauma. Um, and when I was at Shalhavet, um, one of the things we talked about was that Dr. King 
during his speech had a uh, one of the first speakers was a Jewish rabbi. Um, and we talked about that, right? This idea that we are stronger together than we are apart, but we're not always set up that way, right? Where, you know, sometimes, and this is not just Jewish and black, right? There are so many challenges happening within community that it's hard to come across communities. Yeah. And, and I think to some degree we need to do that. Um, I think it's really difficult to do that um, because we have internal community issues that we're trying to solve. Um, and then because the things we're trying to solve for feel so close, right? Like that you can't actually go there and do that. Although if you went over there and worked with the other community, you might get even more for both communities. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing I, I'd, I'd say about this is like, we've had a lot of challenges as distinct communities. We've come a long way. Um, but we haven't always, and, and I talked recently with someone about the Crown Heights riots, um, and, and I was there at the time. And I remember that was the first moment because I had so many people in my circle who were Jewish and people obviously who were black that I felt like, wait, 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 there's a third way. It's not this way or that way, right? right? It, and I think I was like 10 or 11 or something like that. But I remember thinking, there has to be something that connects us more than that takes us apart. Um, and, and I would say that's our humanity, but we don't always go there. It's interesting. When I was 10, I think I was thinking about pizza and video games, Tali, <laughs> and you were thinking about the third way. Well, I was living um, in Crown Heights. Right. I mean, you know. <laughs> Pretty remarkable. Um, you know, it is interesting. I think the black and Jewish communities are should be natural allies in so many ways. I do think there's two pieces that are I don't know, holding back, but we have to we have to grapple with. One is there is an inherent racism within the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's very subtle, unfortunately, sometimes not so subtle. Mm -hmm. um, it's perpetuated uh, in many ways by educators, sometimes in schools. It's it's horrific, meaning mm -hmm. it's very sad. Not in the well, I don't even know. I don't want to say which in which denominations. It's something we have to work on as a community, meaning. Mm -hmm. We should see the black community as natural allies, people who have struggled the way we have been treated and looked at, uh, you know, without, you know, just judged without given the fair chance to, you know, and, and pushed out of countries and put, I mean, everything you've been through, we've been through um, broad strokes. Mm -hmm. I know you don't like sure. when I talk about broadly, no, no, but, um, and so the racism sort of really has no place to some degree. Um, and I, and I kind of wish we could talk more openly about it and get past it. Meaning like, like, Hey, that was, it was, it's what it was, but let's move forward. The other issue is Israel because Israel is challenging in the sense that, for instance, Black Lives Matter, at some point as part of their platform, had a default support of the Palestinian people uh, and wanted to boycott and divest Israel. Because, and I understand where they're coming from, it seems like the Palestinians are sort of like the marginalized group there and Israel's this all-powerful, you know, privileged nation that's killing it and no no pun intended on the killing it. Um, you know, they're just doing super well and Palestinians are struggling. And so there's this there's this uh, natural form of identification between the black community, which feels like it's struggling as part of this, you know, America and, and this, it's not even, it's not a meritocracy to some degree. It's just this hierarchical thing. And so there's an automatic default to support the Palestinian people where the Jewish community says, wait a second, just because one group is bigger than the other or stronger or more or more affluent or more successful doesn't make one right and one wrong. Israel's trying to do what it needs to do and it's trying to do the best it can. And so I sometimes see that 
sometimes in some parts of the black community, very much aligned with Israel and supporting Israel. And in some parts of the black community, there's an automatic, you know, that intersectionality notion of like, hey, we're both struggling. So therefore we align with the Palestinians and therefore against Israel. And that's a real challenge and just a, a flashpoint that I think we need to think about if we wanna bridge gaps between the black uh, and Jewish communities. I, I, you know, I've, I think about Israel and Palestine a lot, um, actually. And so the question that I've been afraid to ask, so I'm going to ask do it right Let's now. Do it. Is why can't the, why can't there be more unity, more collaboration, more coming to, like what, what is keeping it where it is? Between the black and the Jewish community? No, between Palestinians, Palestinians and, Israelis, and Israelis. Lack of trust, pain, um, power. So listen, just think about the two communities. One, it's only 60 years ago, 70 years ago that there was a Holocaust. They have a survivor's mentality in Israel. Like we are never gonna be put in that position again. There is absolute psychological devastation that they're, they're, they have. And so they mistrust everybody. They're not, I'm not putting my faith in anybody. The Palestinian people have mistrust for Israelis. You know, we were here on this land. You know, the Israelis would say, well, it was our land and then you took it, but Jordan took it and then you gave it to you. But, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. You know, the, Pal the UN declares a state and we're, we're stuck. And then, and then there's this horrible day where, yes, we left our land, but that was because we were told we would get it back. And Essentially, they see, and it's it's their uh, tragedy, their pain. Um, they see that they've been victimized for the last, you know, and occupied for the last 60, 70 years. And there's massive mistrust that way. I mean, you're talking about going through TSA. And, and don't get me wrong. I understand why Israel has all the checkpoints they have, because there are a lot of people who want to destroy Israel, blow up Israelis, not just soldiers, actual citizens, but there's checkpoints every day. Can you imagine the humiliation of a 10-year-old watching their mom or dad go through a checkpoint every day? I mean, so there's mistrust in both directions. I don't blame. Listen, of course there's blame. Some politicians, I think, want to hold on to their power. So they like status quo to some degree. Um, and yet, assuming best intentions, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, people hate him, but most Israelis like him. He's keeping them safe. There has not been a major terrorist attack in a long time. So think he's a fascist, think he's a crazy, think he's he's kept them safe. That's their number one concern. And they're scared and there's no trust. And then Palestinians, you know, they're scared also. There's this enormous wall and it feels like mm -hmm. Israelis keep taking stuff from them. And so, you know, when there's when there's no trust and there's no understanding of the story and the pain and the acknowledgement of the pain in either direction. You know, uh, I was on a trip where I went to, the to see Palestinians, to meet them, mm -hmm. meaning in Ramallah, in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. um, it was just interesting to hear. We heard from a researcher who said that the number one issue that each side has is just acknowledging the, you know, Israelis just want you to acknowledge, you Palestinians, to acknowledge our right to this land historically. Meaning this isn't something we just came up with and like showed up in 1948 and decided, hey, we'd like this land. Biblically, we've been living there. We're the only people who have been living there for this long. Doesn't mean you don't have a place there, but just acknowledge our place there, which Palestinian society doesn't want to do. And on the flip side, Palestinians say, sorry to get all animated, no, but- No, this is this great is, for me. You know, Palestinians just want us to acknowledge Israelis. Like, hey, that was a horrible, horrible day 
called Nakba, meaning mm-hmm. it's their it's their catastrophe, when Israel came in and took land that was theirs, mm-hmm. meaning, or that they were on it at least, and they were settled, you know, they, they had been there for, through no fault of their own. So, and that's what both places just want as a start, but neither is willing to acknowledge that. And so that's the real challenge, I think, is that you're, and, you know, politicians are politicians on both sides. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I don't want to assume worst intentions for Bibi Netanyahu, but he continues to stay in power as long as security is the number one issue. And Abbas continues to stay in power as long as, you know, Palestinians are, are struggling and feel like Israel's horrible and doing wrong. And I've met nonviolent activists. Um, oh man, I'm blanking on his name. He's awesome. We should, the three of us should get together. Um, and like, he's hated by the Palestinian Authority and Israel because he's like, we're doing nonviolent activism. He was the one who did the Temple Mount mm-hmm. protest after the metal detectors were put up there. And like, he got in trouble, not just with Israeli armies because they don't love dealing with nonviolent activists. They don't know what to do with those mm-hmm. people. He got in trouble with the with the PA, with the Palestinian Authority who are like, uh, no, if you do this, then you're going to start making peace. And like, then... Hamas has nothing to do and the PA doesn't have any role. So I think every, it's just so multi-layered. And, you know, I think, I think that the move forward is just meeting people. It's, mm-hmm. it's what the work you're trying to do. It's hearing from other people, but that's slow. Mm-hmm. And it feels like, oh my gosh, how is that? Isa Amro is the name of the nonviolent activist. He's amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the, that's what I would say uh, in response to why there doesn't seem the ability. There are groups doing it, and it's beautiful to see. Really, mm-hmm. but by the way, there's forces mostly in the Palestinian community, although I'm sure in Israeli communities called anti-normalization, where you're not allowed to meet with Israelis under any circumstances unless they state unequivocally that like uh, we stole the land. So. If you have anti-normalization forces also, so you have all these Palestinians who might want to engage with Israelis and, and really start to move forward, but they're not allowed to. They're, they're considered traitors because they're normalizing Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you say, you know, you have to say, I'm not, we're, there's no settlements anymore. There's no, you know, you have, to, you have to agree to certain preconditions. So it's really complicated. I mean, it's like wild how complicated it is. I'd like you to work on that also, Tali, <laughs> if you could. <laughs> All right, I got one. Do you have any other questions about Israel? Well, I, I think we can talk over like a meal at some point, but I, I would love to. I, I will be visiting Israel soon. And so we should talk about what that should I've, look I've like. I've got some good ideas for you. That's awesome. Mostly restaurants, by the way. But <laughs> I'll take um, those too. <laughs> let me ask you one question because I have you here and I you're in New York and I'm not always going to be here. And ordinarily, I just do a whole separate podcast on about this, but... So the New York Times just published uh, an article about a study about the financial prospects for black young young black boys mm-hmm. being significantly worse than their white counterparts, mm-hmm. and it actually distinguished girls, females, mm-hmm. black and white. It's not as uh, drastic, mm-hmm. and so I guess the question is, wh- what are your thoughts on this? Meaning, is this just racism underlying somehow? Uh, economic opportunities is this, you know, there was a quote in the article. I'll just read this one quote and then I'll let you talk. Mm-hmm. You, well, you're welcome to talk anytime you want. <laughs> I don't even have to let you. One of the most popular liberal post-racial ideas is the idea that the fundamental problem is class and not race. And clearly this study explodes that idea, said Ibram Kendi, a professor and director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. But for whatever reason, we're unwilling to stare racism in the face. Thoughts? Agree. 
Um, I, I, there was a recent um, study done in Boston um, by the Spotlight team, the same team that highlighted some of the, the issues happening in the Catholic, Catholic Church, uh, the abuse of kids. Um, uh, Spotlight Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. That was a great movie. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they did a, a study of um, African-American black experience in Boston. And you have to read it because some of the data they captured is is everything as a black person you know is true, but now concretely in data and anecdotes, right? And so I say that like we, so I'll talk about it in the education space and I've said this to a number of people, we have called all the challenges we see in education around race, everything but that. We've called it, um, uh, let's see, we've called it uh, data inaccuracies. We've called it um, the achievement gap. No, it's a race gap. And it's a race gap because every child does not have access, especially black boys, don't have access to the same educational experiences and other experiences as their counterparts. And that starts, like, when you can say to me that you've expelled a four-year-old or five-year-old black boy expelled. I, I, I don't understand what that, what that could look like, right? That generally changes your life trajectory and outcome, right? So I'll say that from the education space. But then you add to that police profiling, you add to that um, intergenerational poverty, Right. Like and then you add to that all the the issues of racial profiling that you experience as a black man. Right. That's a lot. Think about this. Like I don't talk about Barack Obama a lot because I feel like people assume like, of course, you bring him into the equation. And I love him. I think he's like incredible. But if he had half of the issues that have emerged about the current president. This man would not would not have made it. Yeah. Right? And and that is about his black maleness. Um, and I would say that's true for so many other black men and black boys. They don't have the same opportunities. And you, you know, you see it all the time. You see it at the playground. So I was reading, I don't have the quote, but I was reading a text recently that talked about when a young person comes into your classroom, you see in them parts of you, especially when you can identify racially, right? Like you, like if you're a white teacher and you see a, a, a white boy at five being rambunctious and other things, you'll, you'll name it everything but what it is. Right. When a black boy does it, he's violent. He is- Totally out of control. Right, he's out of control, et cetera. So you put these, these um, stigmas or, or these um, words that then are supposed to capture the identity of a young person that lives with them, that sits with them. So I totally agree. I think we, we, we are unwilling to talk about race because it's a traumatic thing to talk about. The last piece I'll mention is, um, as part of the Aspen Institute, we're working on a truth and reconciliation initiative. And one of the things we've looked at is that um, in places where the government, where the um, uh, governing body have has acknowledged that something was not done well. Like in South Africa, they've acknowledged, they've they said, I'm sorry. Right. Right. Um, I recently read an article called Germans and Jews 
about the acknowledgement of the Holocaust, right? right? In the U.S., we have not acknowledged anything about slavery that says, man, we f***ed that up. We are sorry. And so there's hurt, there's there's trauma, there's mistrust. And as a result, that just continues to pile on. And we are not willing to face our history of racism, of slavery. I was talking to someone who said to me, it is impossible that that many slaves were brought to the United States. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, there's the data. Yeah. And he insisted. He said, it is impossible. That is not true. Black people were already here. It's amazing. Um, and so so the question is not like, I guess, I guess the question is, how do we actually address the fact that racism does exist? And how do we have real conversations about it? And then how do we rectify the things that we see that are like not the the things that should be happening? Awesome. I have four things. First of all, like it's almost, you know, edit, copy and replace or find and replace Mm -hmm. like slavery and that many black people and Jewish Holocaust. I mean, like it just feels that way to me. I'm not comparing Mm -hmm. the two, but just it's like wild to hear people today say like, it's not, that's just crazy. Meaning like, come on. And you're... um, let me ask you a question that I think is a, is often on people's minds that they don't ask, and I think that that's one of the things we do well here is, so all, so much external, out beyond everyone's control in the black community, uh, inequity and, and, and opportunities that they don't have. And um, there is a, a piece that is often referenced of uh, single parenting and lack of father figures within mm-hmm. uh, homes in, in a high, much higher numbers in the African-American community. Do you see that? Is that true? Is that something the black community could own more? Is that just, no, you guys don't understand, it's just part of now this, this downward spiral between all the other issues is kind of making it very hard to have fathers who stay in the home. What's your, what's your take on that? Um, so that's interesting, right? I grew up in a home with a single parent, my mother, um, but I didn't feel lacking Right, like, I, and and maybe I did, and I didn't recognize it, but I never felt that, like, oh, I don't have X. Um, my perspective was, I have a lot of Y, um, and 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 I grew up in a community, right? So what maybe was missing in my home immediately was in other places in my community. The thing I'll say about that is. Um, if it, there are two things folks should watch, there's an op doc um, by the New York Times um, that talks about the legacy of slavery um, and the school to prison pipeline, as well as the impact that uh, uh, um, the impact of having black men in jail have on the black community. The other thing I would say is watch Thirteenth on Netflix. Thirteenth. Yeah. Um, it's about the 13th Amendment and the implications of slavery on modern day black community and black society. Like, I, you know, you said something about should the bl- black community own that? I don't think there's something to own, right? Like, yes, there's an absence, but also like, look at how many black men are killed by police. Like, yeah, like Philando Castile was in the car with his girlfriend and his daughter, right? And was literally murdered, right? Yeah, he's not in the home, and I'm not. And that's one example, right? There are other places, and there, you know, the divorce rate in white households is high too. 
Um, but I think there's something else there that's not about like absenteeism. Tell me your pro, like if you could press a button, what's the solution uh, within reason? Oh my goodness. I know there's no silver bullet. I know. Is it just like investment in education? The, the government just says we're putting billions of dollars to, to catch up the inequality there. Are we like, what is it? Tell me what your thoughts are there. Oh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if there were a, a solution, I'd go back in time. That's what I'd do. I do. I, I actually would not start from the current day because I think the things that we would need to address would have to start way, way before any of us were here. Um, that'd be my, my button. I, I'd go back um, historically. If I couldn't do that, um, I don't think billions of dollars in education is necessarily the solution. Um, I've worked in the education space. I think it matters, but often those resources don't go where they should, meaning that we're not investing um, in a way that leads to the results that we'd like to see. Um, so for example, you know, you can give X number of dollars to a school system um, and say, invest this in your black boys or black young black men. But if the people who are actually implementing the strategy don't trust in the people they're working with, then yeah, like you're going to have real problems. Like the outcomes won't look the way that they should. Um, when I was a first year teacher, I was 22 years old. Um, I don't know why someone let me be a teacher um, <laughs> at that age, but I was. And I was teaching high school um, and I was getting really great results for my young people. And I remember there was a teacher who said to me, why don't you have fights in your classroom? And I said to him, well, why do you? Right? Like I had an inherent belief in the young people in front of me. And if the resources are given to people who don't believe in that, who don't believe there's a problem and they're in charge of like deploying them, then we're not going to see a different outcome. So that would definitely not be my solution. Um, I think I'd have to think about that a lot. Okay. So then you're saying we need another podcast. Maybe, yeah. Another like podcast where from I can Israel. think of it. Yeah, that's Let's right. Do it from Israel. That would be incredible. Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Uh, I want to thank Tali, Jermaine. You're just awesome. Every time we get together, I'm, I feel enlightened, invigorated, totally you know, ready to go out and help make the world a better place. And I think that that's infectious. So I thank you. If listeners, you enjoyed this, please give us five stars. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Ari. 